Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, we've got two big and fascinating themes we're going to explore on the show today. The first is enlightened self-interest, one of my favorite subjects. We all want to be happy. Every sentient being has that in common. And it turns out that one of the most successful, although a little bit counterintuitive strategies for getting happier is to get out of your own head and help other people. My guest today argues that caring is a skill that all of us can develop. And further, there are ways, she argues, to scale caring so that we can improve our entire society. Long before I met her, years before I met her for this interview, I actually heard Alison Gopnik drop a wisdom bomb on another podcast, uh, one hosted by a previous guest on this show, Ezra Klein. In the course of that interview with Ezra, Alison Gopnik said the following, and I'm quoting here, we don't care because we love, we love because we care. In other words, it is the act of providing care the labor of love, to be a little cute, that produces the love. I have seen this play out in my own life repeatedly and powerfully. For example, when we had our first and only child seven years ago, my wife and I, that relationship, caring for that screaming and pooping little beast, produced a lot of love. Or when my wife went through breast cancer, which ended up improving our relationship immeasurably, although it was horrible in many ways, too. Or more recently with my aging parents, as I've gone through a complete kind of role reversal, essentially becoming a parent to my parent, it's actually made those relationships even warmer. So that's one thing we're going to talk about. And a related theme we're going to talk about with Alison Gopnik, who, by the way, is a psychologist at UC Berkeley and one of the world's leading experts in cognitive development. The other thing we're going to be talking about is what we can all learn about human happiness and flourishing from children, even babies. You're going to hear Allison talk about the learning trap. That's a term of art common to adults that four-year-olds can help us avoid. The potential role of meditation in helping us see the world and solve problems more like kids do. The difference between our spotlight attention, another technical term here, and children's lantern consciousness. The strategy of solving problems by not trying to solve problems and her critique of our modern conception of parenting and what she thinks should replace it. Just to say before we dive in here, Alison Gopnik is the author of, among other books, The Philosophical Baby and The Gardener and the Carpenter, more recently. Also, one final heads up, there's a chance you may hear some faint background noises when Alison is speaking. This is the nature of recording remotely in a pandemic. The good news, though, is that the noises only come up in the first couple of minutes, and then they go away. We'll get started with Alison Gopnik right after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction.
You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Alison Gopnik, welcome to the show. Well, so pleased to be here. So I want to start with something I heard you say on another podcast, uh, Ezra Klein's show. I'm a big fan of Ezra. And you were on his show and you said something that, (laughs) this is an overused phrase. I try not to use it that frequently, but it really changed my life. I think it's an incredibly powerful insight into the human situation. You said, and I'd love to get you to unpack this after I repeat it, You said, we don't care because we love. We love because we care. Please explain. Yeah, so this comes out of a lot of work that I've been doing recently about caring, about caregiving, about taking care of people. And in many ways, the sort of quintessential example of that is the way that we take care of young babies. And often we think that we love that baby and therefore we take care of them. But actually, if you either just think about it or look at the science, it seems as if the very act of caring for children, the very act of caring for people in general, is the thing that makes us attached to them, the thing that makes us love them, the thing that makes us feel that they're special. And of course, babies are a really dramatic example of this because we have no idea who the baby is going to be before the baby arrives. And not entirely, but to a remarkable degree, no matter what the baby's like, we have this feeling of attachment. And it's interesting that if you look at the evolutionary background for human beings, we have a much longer childhood than any other species. And partly as a result, because we need to have so much care for children, and I can talk about some of the other functions that has, a much wider range of people care for children than for in the case of other animals. So not just biological mothers, but fathers and grandmothers and 
what the great anthropologist Sarah Hurdy calls alloparents, people who aren't actually biologically related are taking care of children. Now, maybe if it was just biological moms, you could say, oh, well, you know, it's just biology. You have this baby, so then you love them. But if you think about all those other people, the fathers and the cousins and the aunts and the caregivers, they aren't going to be triggered by biology to have these incredibly important, overwhelming emotions and actions and motivations. And you can even show this in the neuroscience. The very act of caring for a baby changes your brain, changes the chemicals in your brain, changes the way that you function in a way that makes you have this very special relationship with a baby or the person that you take care of. It's one of those deep, profound things that we take for granted, taking care of a spouse who's ill, for example, right? Like you'd think that's a difficult thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. There's lots of anxiety and stress involved with it. And yet it can make you feel that you're closer to that person, that you care more about that person, even when you don't expect that there's going to be a return. And I think that's a really different way of thinking about relationships between people than the typical way that we think about, say, a social contract. So if you look at almost all the work on moral psychology, in economics, in politics, the sort of assumption is, well, look, the reason why people are altruistic, the reason why people treat each other well is because they have some kind of expectation that they'll get a return. I'll take care of you if you take care of me. And caregiving, especially caregiving for babies and children, but I think also the kind of caregiving that comes when you're taking care of someone who's in trouble or someone who's ill or someone who's elderly, it just doesn't seem to have that structure. And instead, what seems to happen is that you're extending yourself to take on this other person. So when you have a baby and you're taking care of a baby, it isn't that you are taking care of the baby because you think you should. It's because the baby has become as important to you as you are yourself. And in the meta meditation tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, I think is a really nice example of that, where the practice is to try to feel the same way about other people that you would feel about the people who you're closest to. Yes, and I'm glad you made that connection to meditation, metta meditation, M-E-T-T-A, ancient word that roughly translates into friendliness. The underlying supposition there is that love, and I'm using the word love in the most capacious sense, or sort of the ability we have as mammals to give a crap, Love is a skill. It is not some factory setting that is unalterable. It is not some magical, kismet-oriented condition that you fall into. It is a skill that you can train. And that is the underlying supposition beneath meta-meditation, where you're training your friendliness muscles, your capacity for warmth. But it is also, as I understand it, baked into your we love because we care, we don't care because we love. And that is scalable to all sorts of human interactions. For example, for me in the office, I have been correctly accused of, at times, not paying sufficient attention to junior staffers. I have found that just (laughs) forcing myself to do it, even for staffers who I may not feel like I have got some immediate spark with, just the act of getting myself in the habit of getting interested and asking mentor-style questions, et cetera, et cetera, all of a sudden, the caring is there to meet me when I'm doing the action. And so I just think this has profound ramifications for how we conduct ourselves in the world. You know, I think one way that we could phrase this, and more and more people, I think, are thinking about, worrying about caregiving. And of course, 
the pandemic has made questions about how we care for other people really vivid. One of the interesting challenges is how can we scale up that feeling that we so naturally have for our babies or for the people that we're really close to or the people that we take care of? Is there some way that we could scale that up beyond just the relationships between individual people so that we could have a a more general feeling of care in the society at large. And very much the way that our society currently functions is that those relationships of care are invisible. The daughter who's taking care of her elderly father or the mother who's taking care of a baby, they don't show up in the GDP. They're just sort of treated as if it's either a very badly paid form of work or a very expensive kind of consumer good to care for the people around you. And I think what we've realized with the pandemic is that kind of care is absolutely central. Any society desperately needs to have that kind of care in order to be able to function. One of the things that I found incredibly touching during the pandemic was there were more than once you'd hear interviews with the elder care workers, you know, terribly badly paid, not very well treated, doing this difficult and then very dangerous work. And people saying, well, why are you doing it? And what they'd say is, well, look, it's Mr. Smith. It's old Mr. Smith. I can't leave him. I can't just neglect him. My personal relationship with this person who I care for is really important and it's really what's motivating me to do this kind of work. And the question is, is there some way that we can support those personal, close relationships and those personal close feelings so that they're present and available on a larger scale. And, you know, I think, again, if you're thinking about the Buddhist tradition, the kind of ideal of the bodhisattva, or you see similar ideals in other kinds of spiritual traditions, is that you could feel that way about everybody. And I think the truth is, for humans, you can't feel that way about everybody. You can't feel that close, tight connection to everybody on the planet. But you might Think of that kind of feeling as what you should feel for everybody on the planet. And you might set up our lives so that it was easier to have those kinds of relationships. An an example that I've given, just, you know, a simple, straightforward one is we could provide resources for people who are going to take care of particular elders or Something that I think people are increasingly trying to do is to have intergenerational living so that elders could be involved more in caring for children and vice versa. Children could be involved more in caring for elders, even if it isn't your grandchild or your grandmother. And that possibility, the idea of putting together people who are from different generations who have different kinds of needs, rather than segregating them, here's the elders are off in the assisted living and the Children are often in childcare rather than doing that, trying to put people in positions of care and support people in positions of care. Recognize that taking care of someone is really important and that you should have uh, medical care leave, childcare leave, ways of actually institutionalizing some of those relationships and supporting those relationships. And if you look at some of the philosophical traditions, again, the idea that you could scale up those social contracts is really kind of basic to economics and politics, right? So the idea going back to Thomas Hobbes is the way that you can get people to get over their own selfish interests is to have a very large-scale social contract where I do something for you and you do something for me. And that works pretty well if you've got two agents who are have equal amounts of power and resources. But it doesn't work very well for these cases that are so fundamental to the human condition where 
we're vulnerable. We need to be taken care of. We need other people to care for us. That model doesn't work very well. And the question is, what could we do as individuals to be able to support those relationships of care? And what could we do as a society to support those relationships of care? And I think that's going to be one of the most important challenges facing us as we go forward. And we don't have very good institutions to do that now, either on an individual or a larger societal basis. Beyond intergenerational living, what kind of institutional structural changes do you think could be made to harness this capacity we all have to give a crap, et cetera, or care, whatever you want to call it? Well, one thing that I've thought about that I think is an interesting possibility is that one of the very few cases we have of love being supported institutionally is marriage. So marriage is an example where we say What we're going to do is we're going to have both special responsibilities and special privileges for these two people to care for each other. But of course, it's a very narrow slice of all the relationships of care that we have in the world. And I think as we've started to expand our ideas about marriage, you could imagine, for instance, having a relationship with a friend where you just said, this is my designated carer and I will formally say, I am going to care for this friend. One of the examples I have is, you know, I have a a very close friend who doesn't have any close family and isn't married. And she really worries, what will happen if I get sick or what will happen if I need care? And to be able to say, here's someone who has officially, legally taken on this role. Another example is godparents. You know, it used to be that there was this institutionalized role of being the godparent for a particular child. We still have it in some of the religious traditions. But you can imagine actually having that return as a formal role so that when children are born, They don't just have two parents or very often just one parent who's taking care of them. There could be other people that you could turn to who were officially recognized and and supported as being godparents. Another example is elder care, which is going to be an increasing issue as we go forward. Um, Very often what happens is that you have a bunch of different siblings or children or grandchildren, and somebody ends up being the one who is taking the brunt of the caregiving. How about if that person got a caregiving allowance to take care of an elder? So you could say, yeah, this sibling is going to be the one who will get so much money a week who's responsible for the caregiving. I like the idea of sort of extending our idea of marriage so that the way that we do care in a lot of current societies is, as I said, either we have this kind of market mechanism where you're paying for it or you're buying it or you're selling it. Or else we say, okay, well, we're going to have a squad of professional people who are going to provide care, teachers, doctors, medical, elder care workers, et cetera. And I think that's really good. We need to have more of that. We need to have more support for people who are providing that kind of care. But often the way that care plays out is not so much in I'm a professional and I'm going out and I'm professionally giving care to anybody who shows up who needs to be cared for, but shows up in these kinds of close relationships between an individual person who's caring and an individual person who's being cared for. And I think, obviously, we should have more support for just the professional carers. But I think if we had more support for individual people to care, that would be an important thing to have too. And we can do things to encourage that. Another thing is just the physical geography. The fact that we're so mobile, the fact that so often we're living across the country from the people that we care for and trying to figure out how could we 
bring people together literally, or are there technological things that we could do to try to bring people together, even when they're not in that face-to-face propinquity that would allow individual people to care for other individual people? Here's another idea, a nice idea, which is that you could have a grandmother core. And some people have actually tried to do this in preschools. So you'd have the preschool teachers who are trained as we're instituting universal preschool, but you need a lot of people to just look after three and four-year-olds. So how about if you had a designated grandmom who would be making as much money as she would if she was, you know, working in Walmart, could be a designated grandfather too. And that role wouldn't be the role of being, I'm the trained professional teacher. The role would be the role of being a grandparent, telling stories about what it was like when you were young, giving ideas about the past. And there's a lot of evolutionary work now that suggests that really is the function of that extra 20 years of life that we humans have. So that would be another example where children could get an extra carer, but it would be one carer for each classroom where you could imagine those specific personal relationships develop it. So I think if we're imaginative, we could think of a lot of examples like that that would help at a societal level as well as at an individual level. And one of the other things that I've been thinking about a lot is the idea of thinking about different kinds of human intelligence. So when you think about intelligence, when people talk about intelligence, this is maybe a little bit unfair, but Uh, Not entirely, I think. We tend to think about the 35-year-old psychologist or philosopher who is sitting in his office writing about intelligence. And we tend to act as if that's the sort of peak of intelligence and everything else is just kind of building up to that peak intelligence as you're a child and become an adult or falling off as you're an adult and become an elder. And that doesn't make very much sense from an evolutionary perspective, right? I mean, if it was so great to be the 35-year-old psychologist, we could all have the intelligence of a a 35-year-old. And instead, what I've been arguing is that there's a trade-off, an intrinsic trade-off between different kinds of intelligence. And the intelligence of childhood, this kind of wide-ranging exploration and play and creativity, really trades off from the intelligence of adulthood, which is about getting resources, acting effectively, narrowing your focus to particular tasks, particular problems. And that, again, is different from the intelligence of elderhood, which is this kind of care and teaching intelligence, the intelligence that you need to be able to care for someone, the intelligence you need to be able to give up some of your own ambitions and pass on information to the next generation. One other thing that I think is really interesting about care is that it involves this real tension between your own autonomy and the autonomy of the person that you're caring for. So again, if you were just involved in a market, you have a social contract, you say, okay, we're equal exchangers, I'll do this for you, you do this for me. But when you're caring for someone, there's this really interesting problem that you have, which is you want them to be able to autonomously take care of themselves, but you know that they can only do that if you're caring for them. And I think anybody who's in a care relationship, whether it's caring for a child, caring for an elder, caring for someone who's ill, is constantly having to negotiate, right? How do I let them make their own decisions? How do I let them 
figure out what's best for them. And at the same time thinking, but, you know, they're not in a position where they can completely decide what they're going to do. I need to be able to set aside my own goals for the goals of another person and also help that person to articulate their own goals themselves. That's a really challenging thing to do. It's a really challenging cognitive thing to do, but it's the thing that we have to do when we care for people. And I think there's some reason to think that as we get older and our own goals and desires and demands seem to get tuned down, that we're more conscious of being able to do this kind of care and transmission. So I think it's a much richer picture of human intelligence when we recognize that there's this intelligence of childhood that's about exploring, figuring out what's going on in the world, innovating, doing new things. And then there's also this intelligence of elderhood that's about caring, teaching, passing on information. And of course, those in the middle are able to do all of those things. They're able to explore and able to care. But of course, they're also doing the work of the world. They're actually going out and doing the things that we have to do as adults where we do have to be focused. We do have to accomplish our goals. A minute ago, you were talking about this kind of structural ideas you had for scaling caring. And one of them was this fantastic, stupendous idea of mobilizing grandparents. I love that (laughs) idea. And then you went on to talk about this special kind of intelligence that gets magnified among the elderly. When I was listening to you talk, though, about the structural change, and I was thinking about kind of how I approach this in that I'm not a policy thinker, I'm not a politician. I'm really just trying to appeal to people's self-interest to get them to do things that will be good for them and also good for the world. And when we talk about caring, I automatically kind of interpolate back to the 35-year-old version of myself pre any experience with meditation, pretty selfish guy, really just looking for self-optimizing tools, et cetera, et cetera, not necessarily looking to be better at caring per se. I think what that person was missing was that Caring, even though it's hard, and I say this as a parent and the son of elderly parents who require some care, and so I understand that caring can be wrenching and frustrating and all of that, but it infuses life with so much more happiness and meaning that I was missing out on as a 35-year-old. And so as I was listening to you talk, I think there is a parallel project here. On the one hand, there is, yes, I think we should structurally try to scale caring as much as possible. I also think culturally, we should just be making the case to people that there is such a thing as enlightened self-interest and that the less you're in your own head with your head up your own butt, the happier you are likely to be. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the paradoxes that if you asked most people, What's the thing in your life that gives your life meaning? What's the thing that makes you happiest? What's the thing that is most profound? Where have been the, you know, the kind of deepest moral decisions that you've had to make? What most people would talk about is their relationships to their children, their relationships to their families, their relationships to their parents, to their spouses. And yet, if you read philosophy, for example, and when I wrote my book, The Philosophical Baby, I looked through the 1967 Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and you could read the thousand pages of the 1967 Encyclopedia of Philosophy and think that humans reproduced by asexual cloning. You would have no idea that we had children. I think there were seven references to children in many fewer than there were to angels in the uh, thousand pages of the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So I think it's been really striking that these relationships and these practices is like caring for children that 
are the things that people find meaning and happiness and satisfaction in are so invisible from the philosophical traditions and even from the spiritual traditions. So I think spiritual traditions have often used the analogy of caring for children. But even so, often both philosophy and theology have been pursued by celibate men. (laughs) They're the ones who've been writing about it, celibate men who've retreated from the rest of the world. I think taking those relationships seriously, taking care of a child seriously, not just as something that kind of shows up in the lifestyle section of the paper as a how-to, here's how you should parent, but saying these are really deep, profound relationships and activities. They're not just something that should show up in the lifestyle section. I think that would be a really important cultural shift. And maybe as a wider range of people are involved in caring for children, as men have become more involved in caring for children and caring for elders, that conversation will start happening in a broader way. But I do find it a bit frustrating that The whole conversation about caring for children, for example, is so oriented around fixing up your house or doing some other how-to. And the real depth of that relationship and those experiences, I think, gets lost. And again, taking care of children is just like taking care of elders. It's frustrating and it's tedious and it's difficult in all sorts of ways. But it's also deep. It's also profound. It's also a very important part of what makes us human. And that's not just parents taking care of children, but just our relationship with the next generation in general is one of the things that makes us human. Much more of my conversation with Alison Gopnik right after this. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E.com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's dive into babies for a second. There are many angles I want to pursue from your book. Let's just start with this notion that children and babies learn in a very interesting way, and there might be something that we can learn from how they learn. And you did an experiment that really illuminated this. Can you talk about that? So I've been collaborating with a bunch of people in artificial intelligence. So I'm part of the Berkeley AI Research Group. Why would a developmental psychologist be uh, collaborating with people in AI? Well, it's because one of the things that we've realized is that if we're going to have machines that are capable of doing sophisticated things, they're going to have to learn. And human babies are the best learners that we know of in the universe. And one of the really basic foundational problems that comes up in AI that people in AI have talked about is what's called this explore-exploit trade-off. So the idea is you want a system that's going to try to solve a problem, find a new solution, develop a new hypothesis, but you also want systems that will act effectively, that will make decisions, that will do things out in the world. Both of those things are necessary for intelligence. But the trouble is there's this kind of intrinsic trade-off between exploring widely, thinking of lots of different things, considering lots of different options, and being able to settle in on the option that's actually the best option. And in computer science, they talk about this kind of trade-off all the time. So if you're spending a lot of time thinking about solutions that are very different from the ones that you currently have, you might be wasting a lot of time thinking about things that aren't going to actually help you very much. And you might think, well, you'll be better off just making little tweaks to what you're already doing and try and see if that works better. But if you just make little tweaks to what you're already doing, there might be a much better solution that's much further away, that's really different from what you're currently doing. And if all you're doing is just tweaking the way that you currently are, you're never going to find that much better solution. So there's this real trade-off. And in computer science, the solution to that trade-off is often start out exploring and then exploiting. So start out by looking at the big, broad parameters of the problem. Start out trying to see what's going on in this world in general, and then narrow into, okay, what can I actually do? What's the best answer to this problem? And I think you can see that explore first, exploit later kind of structure in things like brainstorming and a lot of practices that we have when we want to be both creative and innovative and effective at the same time. And my argument is that childhood is really evolution's way of solving that explore-exploit problem. So the idea is that by having a protected childhood, we have a period where we can explore, we can try lots of different options, we can do different things because we're protected. And this is the flip side of the caregiving we were just talking about. The caregiving is so important because it allows a new generation of children to explore. So, all right, that sounds very theoretical. So what we did was we did an experiment that is based on the idea of what's called approach-avoid learning. So here's how the experiment goes. You have a little box, and if you put the right thing on the box, then you'll get stickers, it will light up, but you put the wrong thing on the box and you don't get stickers. In fact, you lose stickers. And you get to decide, should I try this or not on the box? And this is a nice example where there's a trade-off. If I try it, 
then I'm going to find out whether or not that block is really rewarding or not. But of course, if I try it and it turns out that it's the risky one, it's the one that makes me lose stickers, I'm going to lose. And what happens with grown-ups is that after they've tried a couple of blocks, they stop trying things that are new. So what happens is after they try a couple of blocks, they decide, okay, I know what the rule is. It's striped ones are good and, and spotted ones are bad. And then they just never try the spotted ones. But of course, if you think about it, it might be that maybe, you know, the green spotted ones actually are good, even if the red spotted ones are bad. And you're never going to find that out if you don't actually try. And we think that a lot of disorders like anxiety disorders, phobias, things like that seem to have this kind of structure, right? So you get on the plane, you have a terrible experience on the plane, and then you develop a fear of flying and you'll never get on a plane again. But of course, most of the time, if you just had managed to go on try, you would have found out that actually it's not so bad. So what we did was we did this kind of task with four-year-olds and seven-year-olds and grown-ups. And what we found, as lots of other studies had found, is that grown-ups get stuck in what's called a learning trap. So they won't explore when they should. They won't get the information they need to really solve the task. But interestingly, the four-year-olds didn't. So the four-year-olds were much more willing to risk losing something in order to get information. And, and you know, if you know any four-year-old, I've, I've just spent uh, several months with my 18-month-old grandson. And that's essentially all they do all day long is try things and see what's going to happen, even if it's going to have bad outcomes. So if you think about a busy box, the great 18-month-old toy is a busy box. And all the busy box is, is you just press buttons and turn things and then things happen. So the four-year-olds just want to know well, what's going to happen if I put this block on. And the result is that they actually learn how the machine works much better than the adults do. So because they're willing to risk losing something to find out more about how the world works, they're actually better at learning, especially learning things that are kind of not obvious, that are more subtle or stranger than the adults are. And we and others have a bunch of tasks now that show that same pattern. You know, most of the time, grown-ups are better at exploit intelligence than children. So most of the time you give grown-ups a, a task, they'll do better than children. But on these tasks that really require you to explore, to be innovative, to think of an alternative that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise, to be able to take risks to get that outcome, then you see that the children can actually be better than the adults. And a lot of the things that we think of as bugs from the exploit perspective, things like being random and noisy, both literally and metaphorically, and variable and doing lots of different kinds of things, being impulsive, playing instead of working, being insatiably curious. All those are things that are not necessarily advantages if you just want to act as quickly and effectively as you can, but they are advantages if you want to explore as much as you can. And those are all things that we associate with children. Those are all things that are characteristic of children. There's a really beautiful, very, very simple task that shows this is true even with rats. So if you think about psychology, the absolutely canonical psychology experiment is you put the rat in the maze and it goes down one arm of the maze and there's a shock goes down the other arm of the maze and nothing happens. And then, of course, the rat will never go down the arm of the maze where there was the shock. That's like absolutely classical psychology 101. But again, if you think about this from the perspective of things like anxiety or phobias, you can see why that might be a disadvantage because maybe there isn't a shock anymore. Maybe there's cheese at the end of that maze. Maybe the world has changed. And if you never go down that arm, you're never going to find out that things have changed. And the fascinating result is that although this is 
Psych 101 for grown-up rats, if you look at young rats, if you look at adolescent rats and baby rats, it's just the opposite. So they prefer to go to the arm of the maze where there's the shock, which seems really bizarre. Like, why would that be? But of course, the reason is you're getting information there and you're not getting information in the other arm of the maze where nothing happens. And again, I think if you think about your four-year-olds, they'll often end up, not to mention your teenager, they'll often end up doing things just to see what will happen. But there's another twist to this, which gets back to our conversation about caregiving. And that twist is that really lovely experiment recently showed that this was true with four-year-old humans as well, is that they'll do that, but only if the mother's present. So if the caregiver is present, is around, then they'll explore even the negative option. But not if the caregiver isn't there. This is true for the rats as well as for humans. Having a sense that we're in this safe environment where being cared for has this incredible advantage of letting us go out and explore. So I think it's important that these two things are, it's two sides of the same coin. The children, the babies, and the grandmothers, between them, the caregivers, the parents, the people who are taking care of the children, and the children themselves, between them, are allowing this tremendous human capacity for innovation and exploration. I have a million questions. I want to talk about what we grown-ups can learn from how kids are learning and what changes we could make to tap that. But before I do that, this thing you just said about how kids are more comfortable doing the exploring if there's a supportive grown-up nearby. I believe I've heard that concept referred to as ego coverage. I think it's an idea that's around in lots of different traditions and arguments. By the way, I just did a piece, a long essay in the Wall Street Journal about a fantastically interesting new study that's just come out in Nature Neuroscience Reviews that looked at lots of different kinds of evidence. And what it suggests is that having this nurturing environment actually extends your brain development. So what seems to happen is that children who have what's called adverse child experiences, signals that caregiving is not available, grow up too quickly, hit puberty earlier. They even seem to get their adult teeth earlier. Their brains mature to an adult state earlier. And you might think, oh, well, that's good if you have your brain grow up faster. But it turns out that it isn't really good. Having a longer period of exploration and childhood is actually really good, especially if you're going to be in an environment that relies a lot on learning later on. So let's talk practicality. Are there any actionable nuggets that can be extracted from this learning you've done about how babies and children learn? Yeah. So of course, that's the big question that everybody always asks is how could we apply this to grownups? And I think it's really important to say, look, that exploit intelligence is absolutely crucial, right? We couldn't feed the children unless we were able to actually have specific goals and focus our attention and go out and make those kinds of things happen. So we need to be able to have both sides of this coin. We need to be able to focus and plan and do all those things. But we also need to be able to have this kind of broader, wide-ranging exploration. And I think we can get some clues from the children about the kinds of circumstances that allow that. So get back to the point about caregiving, feeling as if you're in a safe environment where nothing is going to necessarily depend on what you do in the next minute. That's an example of something that seems to be one of the cues for this kind of exploration. And being able to pull yourself out of the planning, acting mode into the other mode, that seems to be something that helps. Having new information, something like just 
trying to master a new skill that you've never mastered before puts you back in the position of being the child, puts you back into a position of beginner's mind. And I've argued that very relevant to this podcast, meditation seems to do that. So I think it's fascinating that the way meditation works is that you are awake, alert, your brain is really active, especially if like good meditators, you've had a big pot of tea before you to sit down, but you're not moving and you're paying attention to your breath. You're not planning. You're not going out and doing all the things that you do when you act in the world. And I've argued that both the function and the phenomenology, the experience is like what you get with children. So what happens is instead of just doing that kind of narrow local search for a solution, there's a kind of paradox, which is not trying to find a solution can actually open you up to more possibilities than you would otherwise have. And there's a certain amount of evidence that this kind of broader plasticity, as the neuroscientists say, this ability to change what you're doing, this ability to think more broadly. I mean, I think it's fascinating that the context for that is not actually trying to do things. So taking at least some time when you're not trying to do things can actually help you to find a broader range of solutions, a broader range of ways of thinking about the world and solving things. And I think if you even think about the experience, especially of things like open awareness meditation, I think that's a lot like what it's like to be a baby, that sense that you're open to everything that's going on around you, that you're seeing all the shadows on the wall, you're hearing the sound of the birds in the background. And normally when we're in exploit mode, we edit all of that out of our experience. We don't take in all the information that's going on around us because it would be terribly distracting if we were trying to accomplish a particular end at a particular time. But what we can do is put ourselves in a position in which we have this broader more open relationship to the world. And I think there are other things that do the same thing. There's a lovely work by my colleague, Dacher Keltner. I don't know if you've had him on. He would be a great person to have. We have. We have had. He's a friend and he's great. Yeah, he's fantastic, right? So Dacher's work on awe is very similar. So the state that you get into when you're in a state of awe, when you're among the redwoods, or when you have a sense that your personal self has shrunk and the world has expanded. And I think both those feelings and those functions are very much like what you see in young children, what you see in babies. So babies are sort of in that state of awe pretty much all the time. I mean, sometimes they're fussy and miserable, but a lot of the time, if you hang out with a baby or you hang out with a three-year-old, you'll experience as you watch them, just look at those eyes and you'll realize, wait a minute, they're actually seeing everything that's going on around them, not just the little tiny fragment that I see. One of the things that I say in one of my books is that you go to get a pint of milk at the 7-Eleven. And if you're a grown-up, you know, you walk down those four blocks and you have no idea. You're blind to what's going on. Try doing that same walk with a four-year-old and suddenly you realize, oh, wait a minute, this is incredibly exciting. There are dogs, there are pizza flyers, there are things that you can wiggle back and forth and look, there's a little dandelion. And, and it takes you about 10 times as long to get to the corner, but you realize that even just those couple of blocks are incredibly rich and full of things to learn about and full of things to experience. So just being with a small child, I think, gives you a chance to both experience this kind of broad awareness and also to experience these deep emotions of caregiving at the same time. So just to see if I can sum this up, if we're looking to learn, we grownups are looking to learn from 
how children and babies learn. There are things we can do when we're in group collaborations or if we're working on our own, we might have safe periods of time where any idea is fine and we can jar ourselves out of our normal sort of super focused, exploitive uh, mindset, which is useful. We need it if we're going to get the milk at 7-Eleven. But we also, if we want to infuse our work with more creativity and innovation, we also want to have access to this other mindset. And so, as you were saying, the ways that we can do that would be you know, having brainstorm periods where everything's kosher to say, also doing meditation or putting ourselves in a position of awe. Those are ways that we can access what children and babies are accessing naturally thanks to evolution. That would be the argument. Now, I don't think we're ever going to be able to do it quite as well as the children and babies do, but at least I think that capacity is there. And we can also recognize that even though it might seem like it's not productive in the moment, it's productive in the long run. And by the way, Dan, I would add to that, hanging out with babies, yeah. that would be yes. my other That's recommendation. That's a good one. You know, it's interesting. You know, I um, I know you're a fan of Joseph Goldstein, the great meditation teacher. You told me before we started rolling here that you, I didn't know this, that you use the 10% Happier app and that you like Joseph's guided meditations. And I was having a conversation with him a few years ago. I was complaining to him about writing and how much I hate writing. And he was really urging me to infuse my writing day with a lot more meditation. That when I'm in this situation of the internal clamp down, this, you know, gotta get it done, gotta bulldoze through this problem. He's like, no, that's when you should do a nice long sit to put your brain back in the mode of openness. And often an answer will come. May not be the answer you were looking for, but something will come. And I've really found that to be very, very useful. Well, I think in general, and this is an interesting piece that's come out of the AI work as well, this will sound like this is the opposite end of the world from Joseph, but I think it's actually relevant. We have a project that we're doing with robots, and it turns out that if you train robots with someone just playing with, say, a bunch of things on a desktop, they actually end up being more robust than if you train them to imitate somebody accomplishing the goals that you want the robot to accomplish. So, you know, let's say you want the robot to take screws and put them in a box, right? Something, the sort of thing you'd like robots to be able to do. The problem is if you just show them, here's screws coming into a box, they'll learn how to do that specific thing. But if you move the box, uh, you know, an inch away or you put brass screws instead of steel screws, then they can't figure out what to do. Whereas it turns out that if what you do is instead show them, a grown-up or in our experiments, even a child, just give them the screws in the boxes and say, yeah, just play with these things. And then you give that information to the robot, you end up with a much more robust understanding. And you can sort of see why that is, right? When you play, what you do is try lots of different kinds of things. You try moving the box over to one side. You try it with different kinds of screws. And that suggests that this act of play, which is something that, again, children do completely spontaneously. And again, it's this kind of a paradox, right? Even though the essence of play is that you're not working, you're not trying to do something, That, but by not trying to accomplish the goal, you actually can get to a place where you're going to be more effective at accomplishing the goal. But even though we sort of recognize it, it's still very hard to find time for it, right? It's hard to actually force yourself when you have a deadline or when you're trying to get something written to say, all right, here's the sensible thing to do. Stop <laughs> writing and go and do something else. I must say one of the things that I've discovered, and this is a particularly wonderful thing about being a grandparent as opposed to being a parent, is as a grandparent, I can just say, 
you know what, I'm just going to go and hang out, play with my grandchildren for the next couple of hours. And I've discovered that by having a rule that says anytime there's a chance to play with the grandchildren, no matter what my deadlines are, no matter what the reviews are that the paper wants, I'm going to go and play with my grandchildren instead. That's actually been really helpful in terms of life as well as work. Having that space where you're not in the narrow range of work is actually really helpful for being able to shake yourself up and do something else. And again, you know, this is classic going for a long walk, playing a musical instrument, doing something that isn't the thing that you're trying to do. There's a wonderful um, term, again, that comes from AI, which is the local optimum. I don't know if you've used that, talked about that. So it's the local minimum or the local maximum. And the idea is that when you're trying to do something, often you can be in a situation in which any small change that you make is going to make things worse. So you just end up being stuck, right? But if you made a big change, then you could actually make things better. And that's the idea of a local optimum. So what happens is you get to a point where, given where you are now, this is the best thing that you could do. But if you did something completely different, you might actually end up doing better. And one of the challenges for understanding intelligence is how do we kick ourselves out of these local optima. When we've become really practiced and good at doing one particular thing, for example, it becomes very easy and natural to think that's the thing to do. And just doing something that we're not good at, doing something that's really different from the things that we do every day can be the sort of thing that will kick you out of that local optimum and give you a sense of other alternatives. I think traveling, we can't do that as much as we used to in the last couple of years. But traveling is another example of something that just kicks us out of our local optimum. And I think gives us a lot of the same kind of experience, again, that children have. So, you know, my two-year-old, anytime he goes into a new room, it's like (laughs) he's got a trip to Paris. It's amazing and exciting and everything's there that you haven't seen before. And look, you know, there's a light and there's a drawer and... There's books to pull out of the bookcase. But I think for adults where we know more and we understand more, getting that sense of novelty is harder. And doing something like traveling is another kind of classic example of what we can do to kick ourselves out of those local optima. Much more of my conversation with Alison Gopnik right after this. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. 
I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&M's, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. I want to ask you about, you, you mentioned this before, but I want to get, I want to go back and go deeper on it. You said that certain types of meditation in particular, sort of like open awareness or choiceless awareness meditation, where you're just aware of whatever's happening right now, stuff that normally you would tune out. You said that that's similar to what it's like to be a baby. And in your book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, you have a whole chapter where you talk about this lantern consciousness and, well, I'm going to shut up and just let you hold forth on it because it's so interesting, this connection between lantern consciousness and meditation and babies. And so please. Yeah. So we know a little bit about even the neuroscience of attention. And what we know about the neuroscience of attention is that the way that it typically works in grownups is that when we pay attention to something, that part of our brain becomes more plastic, again, as the neuroscientists say, it becomes more changeable. We can take in the information from what we're attending to and use it to alter that little part of our brain. But at the same time, the other parts of our brain actually kind of get shut down. There are what are called inhibitory chemicals that keep the rest of our brain from being active. And it's kind of like our brain is saying, okay, most of your brain is not broke, don't fix it, just leave it be and just change this little part that's relevant to the task that you're trying to solve now. And there's evidence for monkeys, for example, that if you give them a task like where it turns out that what they listen to will, if they press a button when they hear something, they'll get a drink of juice. Or if they press the button when they see something, they'll get a drink of juice, that actually their brains change differently depending on what they've attended to. So if you're hearing something and you get the reward, then you can actually literally see that the neurons in the auditory part of your brain change. Whereas if you're getting the reward because of something visual, then the neurons in your visual cortex change. Okay, so that's a really nice, elegant story about how the kind of attention that we typically have as adults, which is classically referred to as spotlight attention works. So attention seems to work like the spotlight. It lets you see one particular thing and then everything else around it gets dark. But when you look at baby monkeys and when you also look at baby humans, you see something quite different. So what you see is that those chemicals that make your brain more plastic, more changeable, babies' brains are just saturated in those chemicals. And we know that the baby's brains are much more plastic. They do much more than the adult brain. And not only that, but they don't depend on this kind of attention. So if you just have a baby monkey and just play a lot of complicated sounds, the baby monkey's brain will change in the light of those sounds. For the adults, that will only happen if there's something that, like a reward that depends on those sounds. So what that suggests is that the way the brain starts out, it's really 
picking up information from everywhere around, right? It's not just picking up information that's relevant to its particular goals. The brain's starting out just finding things that are new or fascinating or that have patterns. And it's designed to pull in that kind of information. And I think if you think about what it feels like to have a brain that's like that, it's like this kind of lantern of consciousness rather than a spotlight. So you're pulling in all sorts of information about everything that's going on around you rather than just focusing on the thing that's most important to you. One of the things I say is, you know, we say that babies are bad at paying attention. What we really mean is that they're bad at not paying attention. So they're bad at not paying attention to that little piece of fluff that's on the ground or that sound of that airplane that's way up high that I haven't noticed yet. And that kind of attention, again, is not great if you're trying to solve a particular task, but it may be just what you need if you're picking up information from the world around you. And there's beautiful work by my colleague Celeste Kidd and others that show that babies pay most attention to the things that will teach them the most. So instead of paying the most attention to the things that will, you know, get them the most reward, get them the most juice, the things they pay the most attention to are the things that have the most information that will tell them the most about the world around them. And that's a very different kind of attention than the attention that we're used to as adults. And I think the experience is this kind of lantern consciousness. It's this sense that everything around you is illuminated, which again, at least in my quite amateur practice is the striking experience that at least certain kinds of meditation seem to come with, where the internal monologue is de-emphasized and then the birds and the light on the wall become vivid in a way that they don't in our ordinary experience. So when I originally started talking about this, these different kinds of consciousness, I had a wonderful letter from someone who was a store detective. And he said what he would do was just sit on a balcony up high over the store floor and then look around to make sure that everything was fine and no one was shoplifting. And he said the only people who ever saw him were the children. So he said you'd walk along, there'd be the grown-ups who were concentrating on doing the things that they wanted to do. And it was the four-year-olds who would look up and wave and notice that someone was standing up there on the balcony. And, you know, uh, my 18-month-old grandson hears the airplanes way before I hear the airplanes. He notices every possible airplane that's going by. So I think that kind of consciousness is a very different kind of consciousness than the consciousness that we usually have. And, you know, aside from everything else, it's just a very satisfying and marvelous way of being. And I think we have reason to believe that it may be an index of our brains being more plastic, getting us out of the ruts of our everyday experience, recognizing that the world is broader than we think. You know, something that I've thought about with this, Dan, I've talked about this a bit with my friend Michael Pollan about some of these experiences as well, is you know, you might think, well, look, is this a hallucination? You know, so it feels good. You have this feeling that, you know, you're at one with the world and your ego is disappearing. But is that just, you know, you do a bunch of weird things like sit in one place for a long time and then you get this strange feeling or you take care of a baby and you love the baby and you feel as if there's no boundary between yourself and the baby. Is it just a hallucination? And what I think is it's just the opposite. I think it's when you're in those states that you're actually, at least for a few minutes, you're actually seeing the reality. And the reality is that we aren't separate from the world around us. We aren't separate from other people. Our 
hallucination is the hallucination that there's this little person inside of our heads who's the homunculus and the self that's the most important thing in the world and that we should be listening to her all the time. Now, that's a very useful hallucination. It's probably the hallucination that that helps us to get through the world. But I think when we can at least have those moments of not experiencing that self, experiencing a lack of boundary between ourselves and the world, a lack of boundary between ourselves and other people. I think just as a cold-blooded scientist, that's actually a more accurate picture of the way the world works and our place in it than the picture that we usually have. I love that. Just in terms of flashlight versus lantern consciousness, it strikes me, having done a few meditation retreats, that If I'm understanding this correctly, you often, in essence, are taught to use a flashlight consciousness, like hone in on the sensations of the breath, and then you can drop it a few days in and you get the lantern. It's like you use one to get to the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And that's also what the neuroscience, I think, suggests. So one of the things that's interesting about meditation practice, you know, for grownups, you can't just sort of turn it off. You can't just sort of say all right, I'm, I'm going to have this lantern consciousness. I'm going to get rid of my everyday attention because uh, the, the everyday spotlight is so deeply part of the way that we work in the world. And I think exactly a way of describing the way meditation works is that it uses that attention. So it uses that capacity that you have to attend to allow you to get this broader understanding of what's going on around you. And there's some evidence that that's true in terms of the neuroscience as well. So it's this interesting paradox, which is training your attention so that you can turn it on things like just what your breath is, actually seems to allow you to give up that attention later on. And I think when you're meditating, you kind of have that experience, or again, this is my amateur experience, you kind of have this alternation between your focusing a lot, and it's even pretty effortful to make sure that you don't wander off and you have to pull yourself back. And then you get these moments when you're not effortful anymore. You're just experiencing the world in this broader lantern-like way. It reminds me a little bit, this this using, it feels artificial and forced and torturous sometimes on a retreat where you're using the flashlight, you know, by just honing in on the breath or whatever. You're using it to ultimately get to the lantern. But it reminds me of that game that I don't know if you played when you were a kid where somebody holds your arm against your side and they tell you, try as hard as you can to lift your arm up, but they're holding your arm down. And then you do it for 90 seconds or whatever and they say, okay, now stop trying to lift your arm and they take their hands away and your arm just floats up because you've done all of this work and at some point it pays off in an extraordinary experience. Yeah, I mean, the basic kind of paradox is that you have to, work and attend to be able to not work and attend. And the opposite paradox is too true. You have to be able to not be productive in order in the long run to be productive. But I think it's interesting that if you look both at computer science and evolution, they both have exactly that problem, right? And exactly that kind of solution. So both in computer science and in evolution, what seems to happen is that you have these capacities for play, for curiosity, for broader exploration. And in the long run, they actually allow you to thrive, survive, and thrive better. But you have to not pay attention to the long run in order to be able to have those (laughs) short-run advantages. And sometimes I think when I'm talking to people in Silicon Valley and so forth, I think in our culture in general, there's this kind of funny contradiction where people will sort of say, okay, so now 
Professor Gottman, tell me what I need to do to play, right? Or people will say, all right, what do I need to do to make my children play and be creative and curious, right? There must be some formula that I can have to make myself be more creative. And of course, the whole point is that you can't have the formula, that it's by giving up the formula and the intention and the goal that you can get this kind of broad experience. And, you know, Evolution and computer science suggest that in the long run, it will do you good. It will enable you to have more possibilities. But I think in the short run, you should just do it because it's such a great thing to do. Yes, yes. We only have a few minutes left, but I want to give you a chance to talk about what you probably wanted to talk about in the first place, which is the central, as I understand it, the central thesis of your book, The Gardener and the Carpenter, which is this whole industry that's grown up around parenting. But often the modern conceptions of parenting are profoundly wrong, you say. So I don't know if that's too much to bite off at the end of an interview, but I'd be interested to hear you say a little bit about it at least. Well, it's actually very relevant to what we were just talking about, because I think the parenting idea, which is a relatively recent idea, was something even the very word only started showing up in the 70s in the United States. I think that's a very good example of something where turning it into a goal-directed activity, turning it into a kind of work, really distorts the practice, really distorts what it's all about. So the parenting picture is that what you need to do when you're a parent is to make a child that has particular kinds of characteristics, make a child who's going to be smarter, make a child who's going to be more successful, make a child who's going to be happier. And I think that's just completely the wrong picture. If you think about it from the perspective of the intelligence of exploration and the intelligence of care, instead, what you're trying to do when you're a parent, this is the metaphor about the gardener, is to create a rich, nurturing environment in which these children who are, you know, fantastically good at exploring and learning, nothing that we can do is going to make them better intrinsically at learning. They're really designed to learn. What we can do is give them a rich, nurturant space in which they can use their capacities for exploration and learning. And I think even more profoundly, if you think about those care cases, it's just intrinsically meaningful and significant and an important part of human life to be able to do that. And again, to get back to my point about our hallucinations, again, people sometimes say, you know, if you think about the experience of taking care of a child, it's a little comic if you're outside it because, you know, you see that to the person who's caring for that child, that child is like the most amazing, wonderful, terrific, interesting thing in the entire universe. And if it's not your grandchild, you're likely to say, yeah, that's a nice baby. I mean, I I like that baby, but it's not like my baby. And of course, your first thought is, well, that's a hallucination, right? It's just because of the biology. But again, I think it's the other way around. I think it's when you're in those relationships is when you realize the truth, which is that every person is uniquely valuable, a uniquely important center of consciousness, uniquely fascinating, uniquely important, different from everybody else, and marvelous because they're different from everybody else. And I think it's more like that it's only in those moments of love and care that you realize that truth about other people. It's pretty hard to recognize that truth about other people for all the billions of people on the planet. But you can realize that truth about other people in that relationship. And then at least abstractly, you can say, and you know what? That's actually true about other people as well. And I think that's a much more 
satisfying, liberating, reassuring picture of the relationship between parents and children, this picture of general care for another human being, than the picture that this sort of carpenter picture that you have a job to do and the job is to create a child that's going to come out a particular way. So even if you could, and I think you probably can, accomplish this end of, okay, here's the list of things that I want my child to be like, and I'm going to do these bunch of tips that I got from the parenting book, and here's how the child is going to come out. Even if you could do that, you would have defeated the whole point of parenting from an evolutionary perspective, which is to allow each generation to innovate, to do things that are new, to be different from the previous generation. So if you knew how they were going to come out and you could control that, you would have kind of missed the whole point of having a a new generation of humans. So I think it's part of this general point that we think about in many different traditions that being in the moment, appreciating the profundity of what's happening at this time. And I think, again, the experience of caring for Children is one of these really deep, profound experiences, but caring for people in general is seeing that as being valuable in and of itself, rather than always trying to think, okay, here's this work that I have to do that will have some outcome later on. I think that leads to a more satisfying experience, both for the parents and for the children. Very quickly before we go, can you just shamelessly plug your book and any other resources that you're putting out in the world that you want people to know about? Yeah. So The Philosophical Baby is the book that's about really focusing on some of these philosophical questions about consciousness. The Gardener and the Carpenter, I've talked about that as well. All of my books are really trying to summarize years and years and many, many, many articles by many, many people in the scientific community and try to apply them to some of these deep philosophical questions. The book that I'm working on right now, which won't be out for a while, is going to be called Curious Children, Wise Elders. How Intelligence Evolves. And that's going to have more of this work about uh, caregiving. But if you go to alisongopnik.com, which is my website, both my academic articles and then things like my TED Talk and my Wall Street Journal columns are on that website as well. So that's a good way to get to it. And some of the more recent essays that I've done are there too. So that's an easy one-stop shop. I should add, by the way, that the podcast interview that you mentioned with Ezra Klein, the first one that I did on Vox, is one of my favorite interviews. And that was a really fantastic one. So I highly recommend that as a kind of an intro to Gopnik as well. I agree. Thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure to finally meet you. And this was great. Thanks very much. Thanks again to Alison Gopnik. Thanks as well to everybody who works incredibly hard to make this show a 2.5 times a week reality. Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant. I would be remiss if I did not shout out our compatriots over at Ultraviolet Audio who do our engineering. Thank you to those guys. We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode. We're going deep Dharma with a teacher named Matthew Brensilver. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do. Uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. 
I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.